Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, then verses 15 through 21 and 27, and then in chapter 10, verses 1 through 9, 25 through 27. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bacharath, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller, taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise. Go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalem, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin and did not find them. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow... About this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my uh -oh. no, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him. Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall call, shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way. Verse 27, as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from their father 
and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying skin of wine. And they will greet you and give, and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Bethlehem, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Then these signs meet you. Do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilga, and behold, I am coming down to, to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When, we turned, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass. Verse 25, then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gabah, and with him went men of Allah whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellow said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Christ Central Church. My name is Josh Kim, and I'm one of the assistant pastors here at uh, Christ Central Church, and we're glad that you could join us uh, live stream at your homes. And um, just want to say you should definitely watch Hold On A Minute this week. Pastor Howard and uh, our First Lady Kelly did a Hold On A Minute about what it means to worship at home and how difficult it is. And a couple of weeks ago, I had a chance to do that at home too, and I am with you. It is not easy to be able to worship at home with our children running around. And I think as Pastor Darrell reminded us, that's why we all the more long for gathering together to worship the Lord. But um, we know it's hard, but praise the Lord, we do have technology to be able to do that. And thank God for the fact that we could gather like this together this morning. And thank you, Pastor Derek, for reading a long text. Uh, normally, when you go through Old Testament narrative, it's really hard to try to pick and choose which portion you want to read. Um, and as we believe in our church, we want you to have most of the scripture as possible. So I try to pick and choose as much as I can and didn't know I was going to put Pastor Derek through a long reading of the word this morning. But we are continuing our sermon series in 1 Samuel as we look at the history of Israel and God's faithfulness through them all. And last week, Pastor Mari walked us through 1 Samuel 8 and told us what we really needed to hear during this time. He reminded us that despite Israel's rejection of God and our rejection of God at most of the times, that God is still faithful and God showed mercy. In today's narratives, we see the response of God to people rejecting God and asking for a human king, and we finally meet Israel's first king, Saul. And Saul's name means requested. It shares the same etymological link with Samuel, because Samuel also means 
requested. But that's where the similarities end. Samuel means requested from God to indicate again Hannah's prayers of surrender and how God answers through Samuel despite Eli and his son's unfaithfulness. It is requested from God. Saul, on the other hand, means simply requested. And what does that mean? He who was requested by the people. The origin is different in that regard. And as we've seen in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, on the heels of the great victory that Samuel leads the Israelites, people reject God and actually demand the king just like all the nations surrounding them. And in chapter 9, we see God preparing to answer and providing that king, and Saul is going on a journey, a journey of a lifetime, a, a silly story to begin with at that, but it leads to anointing for Saul to become a king. And he encounters Samuel, the great prophet, on the way to becoming a king. And as I was reading this story, it reminded me of a movie, I one of my favorite movies. It sounds like a movie 300, doesn't it? It starts out, the movie starts out by saying the Spartans were forged in the battle from the beginning. From the time he was born, he was baptized into the fire of combat. And the boy, given up for dead, returns to Sparta, a king. And it kind of sounds like that as we read this story. Uh, because Saul is like a boy that is going on a journey to find donkey, not to fight a wolf, but a donkey. But he will return a king. And it sounds very similar to the, the, the origin of kings of the nations surrounding them. But that's again where the similarity ends here as well. Because this story is not about the origins of a human king coming of age, as we may be tempted to read it that way. We may think about this as Saul's great ascension into the kingship, but the main point of this story is not about Saul. Rather, this is a story of one true king of Israel. Despite false hope in a human king, God's faithfulness as the, uh, as the king of Israel. And I think this is such a timely message for us as we think about the times that we live in. In the light of COVID-19, we often hear phrases like this, and we often throw it out as well, that God is still in control, that our God is on the throne, and that our God is true king. But how often we say this to one another, we proclaim this as followers of Christ, but how often we turn away, turn around from that statement and place our hope in other things that seems more tangible to us. Whether it is placing our hope in our government leaders, whether it's placing our hope in the next relief program that is to come, whatever peace and comfort they may give to us, we all clamor for more of those things more so than finding true hope and peace in our God. And this morning, I want us to examine our hearts, and I want to invite you and your homes to check your hearts. As we ask with our worthless men in chapter 10, verse 27. And yes, the worthless men here are worthless because 
They are not only rejecting God, but doubting God's chosen king. And as I was reading this, and I was dismissing this worthless man, I realized, I think I'm more like them than I realize. And the question that they're asking is a question that I want us to ask ourselves. How can this man save us? Can we really place our hope in Saul? Is he the king Israel is waiting for? And consequently, are we waiting for the right king this morning? Whom are we placing our trust during this COVID-19 pandemic? And the answer to that, as we see from this text, is that right man is not enough. The right man is not enough. With the first pick of the NFL draft, I think many of us watched that this past week or a week ago. We're glued to the TV, especially because nothing was on. But many of us watched the NFL draft, and a friend of mine uh, was saying that I can't believe I'm watching this live for a couple of days because it's the only thing that's on. But anyway, the draft is all about looking for potential to save your fran fran uh, franchise. Uh, it's looking for all the qualifications, right? They go through all this draft prospect and think, does he have the right characteristics? Does he have all the attributes? Does he have the leadership skills to save your doomed franchise? It doesn't even have to be just sports. It could be about a job application. It could be a resume that you're writing. It could be a school application that a lot of us are filling out to go to college. The question is, do you have all the right credentials, skill sets, qualities to be a part of a team or to lead your sports team to the promised land? But as many of you skilled fantasy drafters know, the right man is never enough. And many of you, okay, maybe just me, but the Chicago Bears fans know that we passed on Deshaun Watson, we passed on Patrick Mahomes, to draft Mitchell Trubisky, a UNC Tar Heel. He looked great at the moment, but we passed on these two guys to get him. And uh, the rest is history, as they say. If anyone is fit to be a king over Israel, Saul is that guy, isn't he? He's the right man for the job after all. And that's what we read in verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, a son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Barakras, the son of Ephiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. It sounds like a list that we make when we want to go on a date, or want to get married to somebody, or a draft prospect. Does he have all the criteria to be the king? The first criteria is, does he belong to the right family? Check. The formal introduction begins with four generation genealogy to remind us that he belongs to this conversation. Does he belong to the right tribe? Check. Saul, a Benjaminite. A commentator, David Payne writes, humanly or politically, I might add, a someone from Benjamin would be a perfect choice. Its location between Ephraim in the north and Judah in the south would help to reduce rivalries and unify Israel 
in the struggle against the Philistines, this bipartisan candidate. How about money? Check. A man of wealth, as we read, further indicating that Saul is looking for a donkey, not alone with a servant, showing that he has wealth in his home. Power? Of course. The wealth here is not only material wealth here. Wealth here also can be translated into a man of standing, influence, and power. All right, you got all that? Is he good looking? Oh, yeah, he is. Double check. Verse 2. Saul is a handsome young man without equal among the Israelites. Good looking man. Does he have a leadership skills? The it factor, as we would say. Absolutely. Here, handsome doesn't only mean the looks here, but indicates potential, the leadership skills that would draw people to himself. All right, you get all that, right? How about character? Is he godly character? Debatable. But as we see in verse 21 of chapter 9, as he's approached by Samuel, this is what he says. Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Debatable, as some commentators say, he is just running away. But I would, have, have, I would like to think that he is actually humble in the beginning, at least. Not convinced? He's tall. He stands out. And that's what the Israelites first noticed when they find Saul hiding in chapter 10, verse 23. Then they ran and took him from there, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulder upward. As well as in chapter 9, verse 2, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And interestingly enough, Saul is the only Israelite in the scripture where the height is mentioned. Most of the time, it is Israel's enemies whose heights are tall and overwhelming for Israelites. Speaking of Canaanites, as well as Goliath, down the line. Saul is the guy who Harvard Business School's guys write about. The Forrest magazines will write about his business documents, tabloids, magazines, the people's, the, the, the sexiest man alive, right? The Instagram followers in millions. Our political parties will push forward him as a bipartisan candidate to bring the country together during this November season. And the rightful person to run for the office. And that's where Saul's downfall is so tragic. His subsequent stories of Saul reveals to us that he is not good enough. He's never enough. And the seemingly right man for the job was not enough to save Israelites. As the worthless fellows in verse 27 ask, how can this man save us? And emphatically, God reminds us the right man, even as greatly qualified as Saul, is not enough. And the question is, what is God doing here? Why would God give Saul and not David to begin with? Is God playing a cruel trick on the Israelites by saying, hey, you wanted a king? All right, I'll give you this guy, but he's not good enough. So just 
get, you get what you wish for. Is that what God is doing? Absolutely not, right? Well, first of all, the king comes afterwards, David, it's not like a king of any other nation. We will actually see that Samuel even passes him by, thinking, why him, right? But more so than that, what God is showing Israelites through giving up Saul and what God subsequently shows us today is the conclusion that we come to again and again and again as we watch Saul walk in failures in later chapters. What Saul represents in this chapter is the best of us, the brightest of us, the noblest of us, the most capable of all of us. And what God reminds us through this text is that our best is not enough. It's not just Saul that is not good enough. In the words of Apostle Paul, no one is righteous, not even one. Not even King David and all his glory and success will be enough. That's why this is utter foolishness. This is utter foolishness for Israel to reject God as one true king and to demand the human king to save them. And it is why all the more in today's climate, in today's pandemic, the God must be on the throne. Church, we have this one true king and our God is enough. He's not merely absent in our tragedy. He's not just showing up now to comfort the brokenhearted. God has always been and always will be present and is seated on the throne of God. That's the greatest comfort you and I will ever receive today, this morning, that our God is on the throne and he reigns and his reign will never end. Our God is enough. That's why, church, we don't mourn and lament like those without hope. And this is not a statement of privilege, but a statement, a bold declaration of faith in light of brokenness and lament. We do not live as if the worst case scenario is death of our bodies and broken economy, but live in light of eternity to come as we mourn our brokenness and the world's brokenness ever so highlighted by COVID-19. Oh, church, how often we fall into the same trap over and over again, hoping and thinking that the right man will do the job, that right man will rescue me from my loneliness, the right job or the situation will bring me joy, even perhaps right church, right, right social standing, the groups will provide me with a sense of security. The right leader will speak what I need to hear. The right country will protect and save me in this crisis. Church, I believe we often forget the gospel reality we are called to live in. And this pandemic shines light on that emptiness brighter than ever before. Our God is on the throne even today. Amen? And we need that because not only the right man, but even the right action is not good enough. And that's the second point that we see today. The right action is also not good enough to save us. The question a lot of us ask during this time of stay-at-home orders is what TV shows are you binge-watching on? And I think a lot of us could share different shows we're watching. And if you have Netflix, they have like top 10 shows on, um, in the U.S. that you could browse through. 
But if I could make a recommendation for you to watch, and I've been binge watching this show for the past a month or so, every day, every morning, is Paw Patrol. You get me, parents? I get it. I know the parents you're watching, you, you, your kids probably perked up thinking, wow, Pastor's talking about Paw Patrol. But if you don't know what Paw Patrol is, that's fine. It's okay. If you know what that is, I feel you. We're in this together, right? Let's get through this together. Um, but this is the only thing that keeps me sane, that keeps you sane, that keeps all of us sane, right? Please, once, once again, watch the Hold On a Minute. That will explain a lot of things. But it's basically a TV show that children love to watch. And it's about this five puppies, Chase, Rocky, Zuma, Sky, Rubble, Marshall. I think I got that right. Because if I don't get that right, my son will be really mad at me. Um, please help me. <laughs> but with all the given abilities and powers of these puppies that save the day, there is one puppy or one pup that always seems to mess up. Marshall. And you know what that is. Marshall always messes up. And he's a spoiler alert here. But as he messes up in every single 15-minute episode, Ryder, the leader of the group, comes to help and save the day. What a gospel story. Amen. Let's go watch Paw Patrol today, right? Um, Saul seems to be not only the right man here. I'm trying to connect with our children at home here to help you out. Um, Saul seems to be not only the right man, but he also seems like he's the right man doing the right thing. Upon meeting Saul, uh, upon Saul meeting Samuel in chapter 9, Samuel gives explicit details on what Saul must do. And the three signs Samuel gives to Saul comes to its fruition upon Saul's obedience. In chapter 10, verse 2, Saul is told to go back because the donkeys are found. And in fact, um, he hears the news that donkeys are found. In chapter 10, verse 3 and 4, at the Oak of Tabor, by the Rachel's tomb, a historic site for Israelites, two loaves of the bread is provided for Saul and his servant. In chapter 10, verse 5 through 7, Saul meets a group of prophets, and the Spirit rushes into him, and he's able to prophesy. You see, Saul is faithful in following all the instructions that Samuel gives in chapter 9 and 10. And through his actions, he's affirmed. Not only affirmed, he eventually gets anointed, groomed to be the king of Israel. And verse 9 and 10 is one of the more confusing verses that we find in the scripture. When we read, when we read, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. And verse 10, we didn't get to read this, but it says, when they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. So what does this mean in light of Saul being rejected as a king later on? Doesn't it seem like he's transformed as a man here? Why is God letting him go? It seems as though God transformed him, and he's fallen later despite God's transformation. What this verse is indicated is, is that God is filling and giving Saul abilities to be confirmed as a king and do the work he's called to do. But this does not mean a transformation of the heart that we're familiar with in the New Testament. And without going further into theological arguments here, what we see from the context and uses, usage of the language here 
and we have seen throughout the Old Testament, the filling of the Spirit doesn't necessarily mean that you're transformed to be a follower of the Lord. Even by those not in God's chosen instrument are sometimes filled with the Spirit to do God's work. Mainly, we see that from a donkey, from Balak and Balaam, speaking the prophecy of the Lord. Rather, what we see here in a broader narrative is reason again that we see the tragedy of Saul's story is that Saul seemed to be doing all the right things that he's called to do. He's going through all the right steps, going through being and being confirmed as the king. Saul was given not only confirmation to be the king, but given all the right tools and abilities, even the filling of the spirit to do the job well. But that does not mean that his right actions will lead to complete heart transformation. That does not mean just because he's equipped to do the work well, just because he's doing all the right things well, does not necessarily mean that he is going to be able to save Israelites. Again, what is God doing here? Even confirming his call as a king, seemingly giving all the ability to Saul, is he merely giving us the bad Saul, deceptive Saul, so we could get to David, a man after God's own heart? who does everything right, even down to following the Lord in his heart? Is he setting Saul up for a failure so we could once again get what we risk for? Again, I don't think that what, that's what God's doing here. What God is doing and reminding the Israelites, even David, as he seems to be doing all the right actions later on, he's not good enough. His good actions are not Good enough. And I'm not just talking about his adultery and his subsequent murder and the pride in counting the people later down in his rule. The reason why David is called a king, a man after God's own heart, and the reason why he's hailed as a great king of Israel isn't because he's following and doing all the right things. In fact, if you count all the things he has done, there's many doubts and questions about his kingship. But the reason why David is man after God's own heart is because he merely points towards the great king that is coming. The reason why David is a great king in line of Judah that will come and Christ is coming is because of just that. He will point towards the ultimate king that is to come. What God reminds us through this text again in showing the Israelites and to us again is that even the right experience, right association, even the right response in how you play the game is not good enough to save you from yourself. It's not good enough to save us from our sin and death. Placing your hope in the person doing all the seemingly right actions is not good enough. More so, placing our hope in our own actions, in our own good deeds, in serving, loving, giving all that alone is not good enough to save us. And doesn't this remind, of, um, remind us of a story of a rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19? When the Matthew chapter 19 rich young ruler comes to Christ and says, how can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, do all this, all the commandments, and he says, I have done them all. I have done them all. And he says, what should I do next? 
And it says, if you will be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, and come follow me. And it says, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And this story is not about having a lot and not having, uh, having a little and having a lot. It's about who do you have at the heart? Who is your idol? Who do you serve? Your actions are not good enough. And this is the response of the disciples at this story. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? If a great young ruler, with all that he has done in his life, is not good enough to be saved on his own, who can be saved? And this is what Jesus tells them. With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. What is the lesson that we see from Saul's story, as well as the rich young ruler? Is that our good works cannot save us. Even in our attempts, as he shows, we lack and we fall short. We're not self-sufficient on our own. We're not able to save us by our own good works. One of our elders at our church shared this with me, and I thought this was one of the most profound things. He shared that in his life experience, when you cannot love someone sacrificially, when you're so wrapped up in your own righteousness of thinking that I have done good enough, why don't you respond to that? Thinking that you're doing good for others while others are not doing good to you, whether it is in relationship, whether it is in serving others, if you have a struggle in that, the first thing you ought to check is how are you doing in your relationship with the Lord? And what he reminded me was when you realize that you are loved beyond who you are, simply loved by God, then you cannot help but to love others in response. That security and not your own righteous actions, but resting in the righteous act of Christ. First thing we ought to do is to check what is going on in our hearts. Another way to say is, who are you defined by this morning? Are you trying to love and serve based on who you are, based on how much money you have in your bank account? Do you measure your worth by giving how much you are able to give out of your stimulus check to others to feel better about yourself this morning? Or are you living sacrificially and loving others sacrificially because Christ sacrificed for you? Church, especially during this time where we call, we're called to give and serve and sacrifice, then one of the most dangerous things is to find rest and comfort in thinking that you are good enough because you're doing things. Or to find the rest and security and comfort in thinking that I am a good person, therefore I'm acceptable to the Lord because I'm giving things away, I'm serving. Church, do not, please hear me correctly. We ought to do that. We ought to give away. We ought not to hold things. We ought to sacrifice and give and serve and love. But first thing is to check your heart to see, are we defined by what we do with our actions or are we defined by who we are in light of who God is? How can this man save us? He cannot. He will not. You will not. You cannot. I cannot. I will not. Even the best of us in our best actions will not and cannot save us. And that leads to our final answer. How can this man save us? No one can, but the only righteous man in his righteous act is enough. 
Again, only the righteous man in his righteous act is good enough to save us. Barring the words of Apostle Paul again in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, when he declares, wretched man that I am. Talk about a great guy, a right guy for the job. Apostle Paul is that guy. Talk about the credentials, all the righteous actions that he has done. Apostle Paul is that guy. But this is what he says. Wretched man I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And we see that only the righteous man and his righteous act, Jesus Christ alone, is enough to save us. And what we find in this incredible story of Saul's affirmation is that God does not give up an Israelite. And as we heard from Pastor Mari last week, God shows mercy. Chapter 8, 7, clearly Israel has rejected God. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Church, listen to that again. They have rejected God. They have violated the first great commandment to have no other gods before me in seeking to be like any other nation. God had absolute right to say, that's it. Man, like, I brought the ark back to you, right? You did not have enough faith to go out. You tried to use me. And man, the ark is taken away. You did nothing to bring me back, but I came back on my own. Furthermore, I gave you Samuel, a great prophet. And right before you asked for a king, I showed up with Samuel and delivered this great victory to show that God is greater than all the nations. And why would you want to be just like them after you defeated them? It's got to be the other way around, right? Kevin Durant joining Warriors because you want to be like the winning team, not the other way around. Why would you go and join a losing team? Okay, sorry about that sports analogy. It's very debatable. But why would you do that? Here, God could simply have said, all right, that's it. I'm starting over. This nation is a bunch of joke. But here, what we see through this story is that God does not give up. God never gives up. God is going to be faithful. And this man cannot save. This office of king cannot save. David, as great as he is, cannot save on his own. He can merely point to the greater David. And how, how heartbroken God must be. How God wants to pour out his grace. How God wants to set this nation apart. To proclaim his lordship above all. A church, a nation that rejects God as one true king. And this is the gospel, church. This is the gospel message. That he will not give up on you. In fact, you and I are the worthless fellow who have rejected God and also rejected his anointed. And you're constantly asking, where are you, God? Are you able to save me? Are you able to deliver me? Where are you, Lord? Even just as clearly God states in the scripture that he will never leave us, never forsake us. 
that God sent his son to die for us on the cross. All we had to do is believe in him. Even in the light of this great promise of the Lord, you and I constantly, especially as we go through this COVID-19, we declare, where are you, Lord? Why are you doing this to us? How can I be saved on my own? But church, this morning, may you find comfort that his righteous son in his righteousness action does not react to your unfaithfulness. Whether he reacts to his own character of faithfulness, and he will, and he has saved us. And those who believe in that truth will have eternal life, and it is only through him that we can enter the throne of God with confidence and have no condemnation. And that's the gospel hope. And then when we have faith in the righteous person of Christ and his righteous act, we will be saved. That's the gospel that God declares ever so clearly during this pandemic as we wrestle with what it means to see God on the throne. Church, do you believe that? Do you respond to that? Do you worship? Do you live like it? When we were dating, my wife and I, one of the things that was advised to us was to find a godly couple to walk with, to learn from, uh, to be mentored by. And I think one of, that's one of the most wise things. A lot of times these days, the couples go in isolation, and that's where temptation lies. Um, so we sought out a couple we want to learn from. And this mentor and his wife sat down with us for dinner one time, and they're talking about what it means to come together as a couple. And I was just so excited because I wanted to share our story with them, what attracted me about uh, Lynn. And I was listening of all these great things than my wife is, and I would say, like, that's true. Like, she's great, and I, she meets all my criteria. Like, she is, like, God sent. I, like, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed and beyond grateful for grace of God in my life. Um, and as the mentor's wife was talking about her attraction to his, uh, her husband, she basically simply told Lynn that there's nothing about him that attracted her. And I was thinking, wrong guy, wrong couple. Let's get out of here because I don't want to, us to go down that route. But the mentor's wife kept on saying, yeah, there's nothing about him. Even to this day, I don't know why. There's nothing about him that attracts me. And I was thinking, oh, Lynn's not like that. Look at me, right? Lynn must love me the way I am because I have all these great characteristics. And you know, she didn't bat an eye. She basically said, me too. There's nothing in him that meets the criteria. In fact, I had a list. He doesn't meet any of them. And I was crushed, thinking, what is going on? You're ruining our marriage. You're going to ruin our life in the future. But you know, my mentor sat there. I thought he would be crushed too. But he just smiled. And he said, what a comforting words they are. And I was wondering, what? What? He basically said, what a romantic thing that she just said. And I was wondering, that is not romantic at all. That's downright disrespectful. What is going on here? But wow, as I was sitting there, about to cry, this is what my friend mentor said. If she finds nothing in me that's attractive, from physical, emotional, and even personality, but man, I have no doubt that she loves me. 
that she has chosen to love me, not because I am so lovable, not because I have this list of 10 things that I fit into, not because I look handsome today. She has chosen and committed, covenanted to love me from this day on and forevermore. What a romantic thing that is to say. Even if he does not respond to me in the way I want him to, even if he does not keep his promises like I want him to, even if he gets gray hairs, he is whatever, he is not as attractive as the day one. Even if he is not the someone I thought he was going to be, I am still committed and I am loving him and I am in love with him. How satisfying, how comforting that I am not the one. I am not the man of her dreams. I didn't meet all the qualifications and I will surely never meet any of the qualifications. I will fail and have failed in many ways and I can count on my own fingers. But I am loved. I am chosen. In church, I think that's absolutely freeing. Not loved because you are so lovable. Because you're not. But I'm going to send you a son who is. It's not just don't be like Saul. It's more so don't be like the Israelites who believed in Saul or worse yet, wanted Saul when you got God all along. And here is the reality. You and I are not lovable. Repeat that to yourself. We have nothing in us that can be deemed lovable in the sight of the Lord. But he places that absolute value in us. And because of that and that alone, you are absolutely lovable in his sight. And that's the gospel truth. Christians are the ones transformed by the love of the Lord, not because what we do or how we look on the outside, but inwardly we're transformed because of the love of Christ overwhelms us and responds to it in the love of the Lord. And that's why Apostle Paul declares in chapter 7, verse 25 of Romans, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, find comfort in that and rest in his love for us this morning. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that despite our often failed attempt in living this life um, to our best of abilities, Lord, we often find that many things are out of our control. We realize with this pandemic that reveals to us we were never in control to begin with. And Lord, even despite of our best efforts at home, we have failed in loving our family well. All of us are struggling. Lord, we have lost much during this time. We're dreading a phone call that may come of our loved ones sick and dying. And Lord, during this time, our temptation is to look for the things of the world, the temptation is to look for the right man to rescue us. The temptation for us is to look for right actions, even of our own, 
to rescue us, to give us the comfort and security. The temptation for us is to rely on our own strength. The temptation is for us to rely on this world to rescue us. So we pray, Lord, as we come together this morning as followers of Christ, not lovable by any means by what we are, or who we are, or what we have done, but loved, redefined by our God's love in us, in that our actions, our gesture towards others can be a powerful act of love, not because of who we are, but because of Christ working through us. So we pray, Lord, as you gather like this to worship the Lord, remind us of that truth. And to boldly declare with our hearts, with all of our soul and mind and strength, that we love the Lord with all of our hearts. And we love our neighbors because of the love that overwhelms us. Be with our families. Be with all of us as we wrestle, as we pray during this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.